But uh, I wanted to take just a moment to introduce this. Uh, did you get a handout? Everybody get a handout. Uh, Brother Johnston had them. Does anybody still need one? I guess that's the better way to answer it. Anybody need one? Raise your hand. Should be a copy of chapter 19. Okay, everybody got one. Fantastic. Uh, okay, well, there are a couple. There you go. Anybody else? Don't be shy. Just raise your paw. All right. We've been studying together for some time the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith as a kind of point of reference for future leadership discussions. This Confession of Faith is not inspired, of course. It is hopefully a good teaching tool to help us to understand the doctrine of the Christian faith better. Um, in some ways, maybe a little bit like, like a good hymn should be. Um, a teaching tool, something that will instruct us as well as give us an opportunity to praise the Lord, or like a good Christian book that we would not receive as as something inspired, but yet something faithful to God's Word. So we're studying together the 1689 Confession of Faith. It's had its uh, predecessor back in 1644 in the first London Confession, the Baptist Confession of Faith, and uh, the, the, the confession was written in order to show the Baptist affinity with other Protestant groups, and so they drew on the uh, Presbyterian Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession. They drew on the confession written up by the Congregationalists um, among the Puritans, the Savoy Confession from 1658. And, of course, they added some material that was just uniquely their own, that is, that of the editors, Nehemiah Cox and William Collins, this confession was written probably in 1677, affirmed in 1689, signed by a hundred Reformed uh, Baptist churches in the London area, or in the in the in the UK. <clears throat> so we've been looking through this, and uh, I said at the beginning that there were four distinctives. There are, there are a number of distinctives, but four sort of for our purposes things that I wanted to highlight that are distinctive about this confession of faith. So let me just remind you of those four again. They are these. First, that this confession is Calvinistic in its soteriology, that is, its doctrine of salvation. In other words, it's not Arminian. Secondly, it is covenantal in its hermeneutic. That is, um, in our day, it would be distinct from, for example, dispensationalism, the way that dispensationalism interprets the Word of God. Thirdly, it is credo-baptist in its ecclesiology, that is, as opposed to paedo-baptism. And finally, it is reformed in its view of the law, that is, in distinction from a Lutheran conception of law and gospel. And I'll try to unpack that a little bit more today and, and probably more next week, really. But today, I, I really only want to introduce this because we do need to, we do need to go to some baptisms as well. But, um, want to give you this uh, a quick overview of chapter 19 of the confession. This last distinctive, the fact that this confession is reformed in its view of the law, is probably really the most controversial of those four distinctives among modern Reformed Baptists, and in fact among Reformed people in general. So I'm going to unpack it a little bit more next week, but let me give you the, an introduction as to where this confession is coming from with its stance on the law of God. 
So here we go. Let's just jump right into chapter 19, paragraph 1. How do we understand the law of God? Paragraph 1 says this, God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept not to eat the tree, not to eat, excuse me, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By these, God obligated him and all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it. And he gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. So this uh, confession... uh, confessional statement about God's law begins way back in the what? In the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden, where we find the first uh, example of the law. And in this statement, it says that there are two elements of the law, right? In the first place, if you notice, it says God gave them a, quote, law of comprehensive or universal obedience written in his heart. And the key verse that they were had in mind for this is in Romans chapter 2 and verse, well, really this kind of section beginning in verse 11 or 12, but verse 14 and 15 especially, when he says this, Paul says, for when Gentiles who do not have the what? That is, they did not have the Mosaic revelation, these Gentile nations of the world. God gave that to his people. But these people, these Gentile nations that do not have the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Revelation, do, when they, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. This is the verse that the framers of the confession um, went to to say that there is written within the conscience, written within the heart of humanity itself, the knowledge of right and wrong. Adam and Eve knew God's moral will as it was imprinted on their nature itself. In fact, this was sometimes called the law of nature. This inherent sense of what is right and what is wrong as God has revealed it in His Word. It was called a comprehensive, a law of comprehensive or universal obedience, meaning that this law of right and wrong applies to who? To everybody at all times and all places, Adam and all his descendants. How many of you are descendant of Adam? All right. Uh, Okay, well, it depends on what we mean by that, right? Yeah. Uh, By grace, by nature, we are descendants of Adam. So he didn't know whether to raise your hand or not. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, By grace, we we are related to Christ. But yeah, so the law of God applies to all people. And notice that the other element of the, of the law here described is not only a universal law written in their conscience, in their hearts, but secondly, God gave to them, quote, a specific what? 
a specific precept. And what was that precept? That specific law that he gave them. Not to, we all know this from the story, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Don't do that. That was referred to sometimes by theologians as a positive law. So there was a law of nature that was universal, written in the heart, imprinted on the human conscience, stamped in humanity, made in the image of God. But then there was also a positive law that is a law that applied to a specific historical situation. Adam and Eve in the garden with that tree. That positive law was representative of all of the law, such that their disobedience to that law was, in fact, their rebellion against the one and only lawgiver. To, to, to sin against the positive law is to sin against all the law. right? Isn't that James's argument in James chapter 2? If you say, I keep this law, but I break that law, you're still sinning. You're still a, re- a rebel against the lawgiver. And so they broke the law. They broke all the law in their eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the implication of the knowledge of God's law is what the rest of the paragraph is about. Again, paragraph one. The rest of the paragraph is basically a description of what we have come to call the covenant of... They know? Well, let me read it. Let's read it, and then it'll be, I think, obvious. By these, by these laws, by the, by the law of nature imprinted on their heart and the positive law that he gave them, by these, God obligated him, Adam, and all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised what? Life if they obeyed, fulfilled that law, and death if they broke that law. Didn't he tell them, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die? And he gave Adam the power and the ability to give it. What are we describing here? Here's a, here's a, here's a law, a universal law, represented by a positive precept. This law, if you obey it, you will live. If you disobey it, you'll die. That is what we now call the covenant of works, right? So, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden under the covenant of works. Now, the second paragraph then identifies that universal law, that law of universal obedience from the first paragraph as it is manifested later in history. What does that law look like later on? Paragraph 2, the same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall And it was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in what? In Ten Commandments. And was written in two tables. First four commandments contain our duty to God, and the other six contain our duty to humanity. We'll come back to this week, back to this next week, but the confession is basically saying this, that that universal moral law of God that was imprinted on their, in their hearts and, and embedded in their consciences, um, was later on expressed in terms of Ten Commandments. It's that same moral will of God for all human beings everywhere, Adam and all of his descendants. It was expressed in terms of the Ten Commandments. And of course, we know that we can actually summarize the Ten Commandments even in terms of two, right? Love God with all your heart and love your 
neighbor as yourself. So from the very beginning, human beings knew that that was right. And I, I'll tell you, they still know that that's right. Though they may deny it with their mouths, there is a God in heaven. He deserves all allegiance. And there are people created in His image who ought to be loved. Those are the two great commandments. And the Ten Commandments are an expansion of that. Now the third paragraph then identifies some other examples of positive law. Remember, positive law applying to a particular situation, historical situation. Other examples of positive law within the Mosaic Revelation. Paragraph 3. In addition to this law, usually called the moral law, the Ten Commandments, God was also pleased to give the people of Israel what? Ceremonial laws containing several, and notice how it's stated here. What are, what are, what are ceremonial laws? They contain typological ordinances. So on the one hand, there's the universal moral law of God, and then on the second, on the other hand, they're talking about a ceremonial law characterized by typological ordinances. Something that's typological is a type which means that it points to a reality greater than itself, right? It's, it's, a, it's a pointer. It's something that shadows a pre, or prefigures a greater reality. And that's what these commandments did. The commandments, for example, about killing the lamb on the altar and offering as a sin offering to God in the temple. That was a commandment that had typological significance pointing to a greater reality. That commandment was given to Israel, and we call it a, one of these ceremonial laws. It goes on in paragraph 3 to say, in some ways these concerned, these ceremonial laws concerned what? Worship by prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, like the sacrificial system. And in other ways, it says, they revealed various instructions about moral duties. So some of the ceremonial laws revealed moral duties, like, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says to us, remove the leaven out of your lump. Part of the what was generally considered the ceremonial law, and it has a moral significance. What is, what's the moral significance of that? Paul says, get rid of the unrepentant sinner out of what is supposed to be the holy, pure body of Christ. Put them out. So these are the ceremonial laws. It goes on to say in, in paragraph 3, since all of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order, that is the time of reformation, until this new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by, Christ, by Jesus Christ. As the true Messiah and the only lawgiver, He was empowered by the Father to do this. So we're saying, they were saying that Jesus fulfills various aspects of the law, the ceremonial law, the positive law forms, and that they are in their positive law forms no longer binding upon God's people. We don't offer the animal sacrifices. We don't um, celebrate the, the Passover in, in the sense that, that, that the ancient Israelites did. All right, then that brings us to the fourth paragraph, which identifies the other traditional division of the law. Most of you are probably already up on this. So we've got moral law, we've got civil law. What do you think? Oops, all right, I gave it away now. We've got moral law, we've got ceremonial law. Now we've got what? Civil law. 
And that's what they identify in paragraph 4. To Israel, he also gave various judicial laws or civil laws, which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. So this is the traditional three-part division of the law. There you see it, moral, ceremonial, and civil, or as it's listed here, judicial law. Moral law being the timeless rule of right and wrong rooted in the character of God imprinted upon human uh, conscience and being. The ceremonial and civil laws now being abrogated or done away with, fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is the traditional view of the law. Traditional, really for both Catholics and Protestants, as far as I'm aware, um, kind of inherited from earlier theologians who had made these theological distinctions already. Of course, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll wait. Um, now, the, 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 the division of the law as civil, ceremonial, moral, has received pushback from various groups on various fronts. Uh, for varying reasons. Um, and perhaps I, we need to describe these things and nuance them better, which I hope to take up a little bit next week too. But this is the position that's stated by the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists, and then by our Baptist um, forefathers in this particular Confession of Faith. Well, paragraph 5, yet another contested teaching about the law, and that is the perpetuity of the moral law, the fact that the moral law continues to be binding upon people today, or that it continues to be applicable for people, even Christian people today, um, all people. First, uh, paragraph 5, the moral law forever, notice that, the moral law forever requires obedience of whom? Of everyone. Both by those who are justified as well as those, as well as others. In other words, the, the moral law is both perpetual and universal. Part of the, you know, part of the reasoning behind this, the Bible says, for all have what? Sin. And what is sin? Sin is the transgression of, of the law, right? And he goes on to say, this obligation, that is to keep the moral law, this obligation not only arise, excuse me, arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. And that's probably something that we need to review as well, I guess. Maybe Brother Jim might be dealing with some of this in his class as well. But um, is the moral law still applicable for us today? Of course, we're having a class on the Ten Commandments. That ought to give you a hint as to what the answer might be. This understanding of the moral law is what permeated early America. This is why the Ten Commandments were taught in school. This is why the Ten Commandments were placed in public places and so forth, that it continues to be... Um, important for people today. Now, paragraph 6. Um, somebody might say, well, what about passages like Romans chapter 6? We are not under 
under law, but under grace. I mean, what do you do about that? Well, this is, this is the answer that the confession gives. Paragraph number six. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. So this is the sense, they say, in which we are free from the law, not under the law. Not under the law in terms of its covenantal obligations as a covenant of works. Adam, of course, related was related to God in this way as the representative for all humanity. All of us have fallen, and now we must be redeemed by the grace of God. We'll give the, come to some scriptural foundation for this later, but let's go on. And, and then the confession and the, the rest of the paragraph basically says, this doesn't mean the fact that we're out from under the law as a covenant of works doesn't mean, though, that the law has no use for us at all. In fact, it does have great use for us today. It goes on to say it this way. Yet it is very useful to them, that is to believers, as well as to others, as a rule of life that informs them, that's an important word, of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also, here's another important word, it also exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come under further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. And thirdly, this law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows shows them that even their sins, what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to sin, even though they are freed from the curse and diminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval for obedience and the blessings that they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the covenant, by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. All right, I'm going to just kind of go quickly through this, but, but to summarize it this way, um, the confession then basically teaches that there are three main uses of the law of God. What are they? What are the three main uses of, in particular, the moral law? Um, the three words in the confession highlight them. It informs, the law does, it exposes, or the original language says it discovers to them their sinfulness. It informs, it exposes, and it restrains. And those are the three uses of the law. Sometimes people put it like this. The law is, um, in the first place, a kind of a curb. Think of a guardrail along the side of the highway, right? So you're driving down the highway, and you aren't a very good driver, and you go your own way and you hit that railing and at least it keeps you from destroying yourself before you uh, really learn to be a better driver, right? There's, a, there's a, a curbing effect on humanity that the law brings. It, that's the word restrain in the confession. Secondly, the law acts like a mirror. What happens when you look in a mirror? You see 
that you have broccoli in your teeth or that your hair needs to be, you know, combed back or whatever, or you see that, you know, you need to cover up your wrinkles or whatever you're going to do, and you, you, you get a sense better of who you really are. So what does the law do? The law, when we look at it, exposes who we are. It exposes our sinfulness, right? It shows us how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior. And then thirdly, the law acts like a guidepost, like a sign showing you which way to go. What's the right path? What does it look like to go in the right direction? And that's what the law does. It, the, to use the confessional word, it informs. It informs us of the way in which we should live. So the law has these effects. The moral law has these purposes. And then the last paragraph is just an introduction to the interplay between the law and the gospel. Paragraph 7. These uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel. Sometimes people tend to think that, right? We got law over here. That's bad. You got gospel over here. That's good. And you need to get away from that law stuff and start getting over to the gospel stuff. And they're saying those aren't at odds. The law is not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God as revealed in the law requires. In fact, you see a Christian, a true Spirit-filled Christian, and you know what he's going to be doing? He's going to be keeping the law. He's going to be doing what the law requires. It's going to be being worked out in him. Think of the classic expression of the New Covenant, the Gospel in Jeremiah 31, right? God, what does He say? I will forgive your iniquity and remember your sins no more, right? And we say, oh, that's Gospel. And then what's the very next thing that comes out of, the, out of His mouth? Uh, what about the law? Is it forgotten? The very next thing is, and I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. They'll keep my law from their hearts, not just like written on tablets of stone coming to them externally, but coming from their heart internally, they will do the law of God. Ezekiel chapter 36, again, speaking of the grace of God and the gospel and tying it in with the law. Ezekiel 36 verse 26, and I will give you a new heart. And that's really what we call what? Regeneration. Sometimes we call that regeneration, being Born again, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And the very next thing he says is, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and and be careful to obey my rules. So the new covenant then produces a people who are united to Christ in faith filled with the Spirit, and by the Spirit, keep God's law from their hearts. This is what we might call evangelical obedience. Or to say it another way, gospel obedience. Not obedience as being under the covenant of works, but obedience from the heart, born by the Spirit of God, in accordance with the gospel. I'll end with this. Charles Bridges. I read years ago a really, really helpful book on the Christian ministry by this 19th century British uh, pastor. And he, in this book, he talks about how the believer stands in relation to the law in a distinct way from an unbeliever, who, as the confession says, stands 
in relation to the law as a covenant of works. Here's what Bridges says. I'll just close with this because I thought it was just so good. I wrote it down and I keep reminding myself of it from time to time. I think it's on the screen too. He says, glancing for a moment at the relative aspects and uses of the law, which is exactly what we're talking about here, he says, we remark that as a covenant, the law excites, quote, the spirit of bondage unto fear, humbling, alarming, convicting, and leading to despondency. Really, I mean, that's what it does, isn't it? If you are apart from Christ, only relating to God in terms of the law as covenant of works, who in the end of the day has any hope in that? That's where, that's where um, Martin Luther ended up, right? In despair. That's where he was. It leads only to despondency. As a rule of life, Bridges writes, under divine conduct, it exercises in the Christian the spirit not of slavery and fear, but of the spirit of adoption his habitual desire and delight in conformity to the law, witnessing his interests in the family of God. He goes on to make the contrast. As a covenant, the law brings men to Christ for deliverance from its tyranny. That's the mirroring aspect. It it shows you you're a sinner. It points you to Christ. And Christ then returns them to the law as their rule that while they are delivered from its dominion, delivered from the dominion of the law, that being dead wherein they were held. He's making reference to Romans chapter 7, which is huge, and you're thinking about the relationship between law and gospel. He says, they were delivered from the law's dominion for what? So that they might not have to worry about the law anymore or think about the law or or live according to the law? No, so that they might serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. They're still serving the same Lord Christ whose character is reflected in the moral law. He goes on to say, and thus, as Christians live their lives according to God's law by the Spirit of God within them, thus they show their what? Their gratitude to Him for His perfect obedience to it as a covenant talking about our gratitude to Christ for His obedience did as a covenant. In other words, did God somehow amend His original stipulation that only holy, righteous people have communion with Him? Did He abrogate the covenant of works and make it as if it's meaningless now? No. It, he fulfilled it Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And by that now, grace is offered to us because we come into union with Him. So now we live out our lives in obedience to God's moral law as as an act of gratitude in our lives to Him uh, who, who obeyed in our stead and by their uniform obedience to it as a rule to His service. Last paragraph, and then I'll close. He says... Um, We cannot indeed have too much of the gospel. Amen? That's amen. But we may have too little of the law. And a defect in the evangelical or the gospel preaching of the law is as clear a cause of ineffective ministry or ministration, ineffective ministry as a legal preaching of the gospel. So you can have a 
a gospel preaching of the law, and you can also have a legalistic preaching of the gospel. And he says both of those cause harm to the church. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So again, we'll uh, we'll come back to this next week, Lord willing, and kind of dig into it a little bit more and share um, some further thoughts about that. But I wanted to get us started on it today.